This is the last installment this morning in a three-part series that we've been doing on John the Baptist, the greatest prophet. Now, for the Jews, every Passover is sort of a special event in that they set an extra place at the table. There's an empty chair at the table at an Orthodox Passover meal, and they will have a place setting there, and there will be a cup of wine or grape juice there, and they often leave the door ajar. And the reason they do this is to invite the prophet Elijah, because they read that last prophecy in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, Verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. They understand that Elijah is supposed to introduce the Messiah. And so they have a place there for Elijah at their table. And sort of, they realize it's a, a spiritual concept that he would come in and announce the Messiah to them. Now, before we get into our final presentation, I thought it'd be good just to summarize why was John the Baptist called the greatest prophet? If you think about many of the great prophets in the Old Testament, and of course you think of Elijah himself, praying fire comes down from heaven and praying and rain comes down, or look at Moses going and he was a prophet, telling Pharaoh, let my people go, and then you have those ten incredible, marvelous plagues that fall on Egypt during the time of Moses. And Elisha, who has a double portion of Elijah's spirit and did twice as many miracles. So what made John the Baptist the greatest prophet? Well, let me summarize for you, uh, based on what I've studied, these would be at least seven reasons that I came up with. One, and I think you see them on your screen there, because he was prophesied by the prophets. You can look in Isaiah 40. It says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face to prepare the way for you. Now, in the Bible, you've got prophecies that prophesy a priest, a prince, and a prophet. There is a prophecy about Jesus coming, Moses made, and he says, the Lord God will send unto you a prophet like me. He's unnamed. And sometimes he's called the prophet. Then you've got a prophecy about a king that would come and bring great revival. It was Josiah. He's actually mentioned by name. That's the prince. And then, you know, and Jesus is, he's the, the, our high priest. And Moses was also a priest. And then you've got a prophet who would come to introduce the Messiah. So John the Baptist is the only time that a prophecy is made about a coming prophet. You see what I'm saying? And who was it that gives the prophecy? When it says, uh, I'll send my messenger before my face, Jesus is giving a prophecy about John the Baptist in the Old Testament. So that's one reason he's called the greatest. Two, God chose him to break the 430 years of divine silence that existed from the time of Malachi. There was no prophet. That's why there was such a stir when he showed up and started to prophesy and preach there in the wilderness. Everyone went out because there had been no prophet in Israel and there was great enthusiasm. 
because he had the privilege of showing the fulfillment of all their predictions. Not only was he the first prophet since Malachi, he then introduced the fulfillment of all these prophecies of the coming Messiah. And many of the Old Testament prophets pointed to Christ. Four, he had probably the greatest and uh, boldness and the greatest humility that you find, but we're going to touch more on that later. Uh, number five, he actually laid hands on Jesus and baptized Jesus. Even John recognized, I'm not worthy to bear your sandals, and here you're telling me to baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, you baptize me. Can you imagine that? And he witnesses the Holy Spirit coming down and anointing him. He saw the Christ being anointed, and that's what Christ means. When you christen a ship, Christos means you anointed. Uh, few evangelists were as successful as John in bringing revival. It says thousands came and were baptized. I, not too many evangelists have the baptismal record of John the Baptist. And finally, seven, he was the first martyred Christian. And you say, wait a second. I thought Stephen was the first martyr. Stephen's the first martyr of the apostles and the, pro uh, the disciples after the cross. But would you say that John the Baptist was a Christian? I mean... He's the one who introduces Christ. So he's the first martyr. He dies because of his preaching. So was John Elijah? I'd like you to go in your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 21. And it says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to interrogate him. They saw the thousands were coming. He was preaching, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're wondering, who is this hairy, scary character that's out there in the wilderness uh, preaching with such force? And they asked him point blank, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now, what did John say when they said, are you Elijah? I am not. Why did he say he was not when Jesus said, Matthew 11, for all the prophets prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Jesus said he is. John said, I'm not. The reason is because they were asking the wrong question. They were asking, are you the reincarnation of Elijah? Now, does God teach reincarnation? When the Bible says that he was going to send Elijah the prophet, was it literally Elijah? Well, yes and no. Did Elijah literally come and meet with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes. But when John the Baptist began his ministry, was he literally Elijah, or did the angel tell his father he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah? And any good Bible student knows in the same way that Elisha said, give me a double portion of your spirit, Elijah was still alive when Elisha got a double portion of his spirit. They weren't the same person. Elisha was not a reincarnation of Elijah. When God told Moses, I'm going to take your spirit and put it on the 70 elders, and it's not like Elijah or Moses have some special copyright of the Holy Spirit. It means the spirit of ministry and leadership and wisdom that God gave these prophets. So when the Jews said, John, are you Elijah? He said, no, I, he, I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah. But Jesus said, if you're able to receive it, what he meant is if you can understand this is a spiritual, it's a metaphor. 
that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to do a similar work. We're going to talk about that work. Now, here's a point I don't want you to miss. Go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Now, in Matthew 11, Jesus said, if you can receive it, this is Elijah. Now, look in Matthew 17. He says it again, but he says it differently. Matthew 17, verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said, indeed, Elijah is coming first. The scribes were right. Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already. Notice that. Even after John the Baptist is arrested and his ministry is done, Jesus said, Elijah is coming. Future tense. And then he says, Elijah has come. And then they understood he talked about John the Baptist. But don't miss that Jesus said, John was not the complete fulfillment of what we read this morning. Malachi chapter 4. Because when you read in Malachi 4 verse 5, it says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What is that? That's the second coming. Let me show you an example of that. If you have your Bibles and you look in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2 verse 28, Joel chapter 2 verse 28, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. What is Joel talking about? No, when is Joel talking about? If you read in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 verse 16, listen to what Peter says. The Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, they're speaking in tongues, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's what Peter says. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and it will come to pass in the last days, says God, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. He commences then to quote verbatim the prophecy of Joel. But here's my question for you. Was Acts chapter 2 the final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Or is God going to still pour out His Spirit before the second coming? Pentecost was the former reign. There's going to be a latter reign of the Holy Spirit. So that prophecy of Joel has at least a double application. So when he says, I send you Elijah the prophet, yes, Elijah was going to come and announce the first coming of Jesus, but he said, Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. You still with me? You're quiet. Let me read something to you, and this is a quote from the book Christian Temperance, page 39. John the Baptist was a representative of those living in the last days to whom God has entrusted the sacred truths to, prevent, to present before the people to prepare the way for the second appearing of Jesus. John had a special message to prepare people for the first coming of Christ. We have a work to do to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. So this prophecy about Elijah, when we look at John, we're looking at ourselves because the work that he did, the work Elijah did, is a work we must do. And in some ways, it's even more important because it's preparing people for the end. John prepared people for the beginning of the Christian ministry. See what I'm saying? So, 
John the Baptist partially fulfilled Malachi 4, but it's going to be more completely fulfilled. Let me give you another quote from the book Testimonies to Ministers, page 475. Prophecy must be fulfilled. The Lord said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Somebody is to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So how was John the Baptist like Elijah? Now what we're going to look at is three things. We're going to look back at Elijah to find out who he was because John has the work of Elijah. Then we're going to look at the work of John the Baptist. Then we're going to look at how does that relate to us today and should we be modeling and mirroring that ministry, getting the world ready for the second coming. Do you understand what we're doing now? This is very relevant. These other two messages led up to this one. It's talking about where we ought to be. John is an example for us in doing the work of Elijah. Now I've got about 12 points if you want to count. And uh, number one, bold and fearless preaching. Was Elijah a bold and fearless preacher? Elijah says to Ahab, Ahab says, are you the troubler of Israel? And Elijah gets right up in the face of the king and says, no, you are the troubler of Israel and your wife and your sins and your idolatry. And not only does Elijah say that to Ahab, he says it to Ahab's son later after Ahab dies. His son sends an army to arrest Elijah. And Elijah says, go back and tell the king he's going to die because of his idolatry. And he has him, tries to have him arrested, and Elijah calls down fire on the posse that comes to arrest him. Twice. He was a bold preacher. He stood on Mount Carmel against all the prophets of Baal and had the courage to stand up and say, you say that Baal is God? I think you're wrong. I believe Jehovah's God. Let's have a showdown. Wow, courage. We need that in the last days, friends. What about John the Baptist? Did he have courage? I mean, if you can make anybody mad, he made them all mad. He spoke against the church. Scribes and the Pharisees came and he said, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you're going to come, you better bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Telling the pastors they need to repent. And then he tells the king, you're committing adultery with your brother's wife. That's courageous. We need more courageous people today that aren't ashamed of what they believe. A lot of us have sort of a counterfeit courage. It's like that man that used to brag to his friend that he cut off the tail of a man-eating lion with his pocket knife. And his friend said, why didn't you cut off the lion's head? He said, well, someone had already done that. <laughs> Luke 9, 26. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his Father and the holy angels. Do not be ashamed of what you believe. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you know what Paul prayed for? We talk about the armor of God, but you know what he says? He says, and pray for me that I might be bold. You know, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, not only did it come on the disciples in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, says they knelt and they prayed that God would give them boldness, that they wouldn't be intimidated, they wouldn't be afraid. That's amazing to me how bold the people that serve the devil are. They have no qualms about parading what they believe. Amen? Why are Christians so timid? Our culture today is calculated to intimidate us. Do not be afraid. God is wanting people that will stand up for him in the last days, and he will stand with you. 
Point number two, they had a message for the church. Elijah wasn't really sent like Jonah to the Gentiles. He was sent to Israel. He said, gather all of Israel to me. The people came to Elijah in the wilderness. They came to John in the wilderness, and they had a message for the people of God to repent. And so before the Holy Spirit's poured out, there needs to be a work of revival among God's people. And John was an example of what God was calling them to be in his life. Point number three, they both had a simple diet and dwelling. You notice that? 1 Kings 17, 11, Elijah says, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand and a cup of water. John the Baptist, he ate locusts and wild honey, and we talked about that. And there needs to be that kind of simplicity among God's people. In the book, uh, Christian Temperance, I just quoted, it says, the same principles of temperance that John practiced should be observed by those who in our day are to warn the world of the coming of the Son of Man. So many people don't understand the gospel because their minds and health is so befuddled that they just can't think straight. And in our lives and in our example, we ought to be living out the principles of health and temperance. And, uh, you know, today we've got more things that you can eat than ever before in history. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. That's another way of saying they, they eat to live, they don't live to eat. I mean, you should enjoy your food, but um, we got channels that are dedicated to watching other people cook and eat. So we vicariously. It's not enough that we, if we don't get enough to eat, we'll watch other people eat. Sorry for those of you that watch those channels. <laughs> Proverbs 23, 21. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and a drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Uh, John and John the Baptist and Elijah, they had self-control. And they were industrious. Point number four. They both dressed in modest, simple clothing. I think Christians ought to be known for not being flamboyant and ostentatious and trying to attract attention and following every fad or fashion. And Elijah and John prove, says, let me just read this to you here. Elijah, he was a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. 850 years later, now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This should be encouraging for you who have your old clothes in the closet because you think a style will not come back. 850 years later, it came back. So <laughs> hang on to those wide ties and those bell bottoms and, and whatever else you got. But let's face it, they, they did dress modestly. That doesn't mean Christians shouldn't look frumpy because we represent Jesus. But at the same time, what people notice about a Christian should be that you're neat and clean in who you are, not what you wear. In the world, all the attention goes to what kind of dress the woman wears. And they'll have fashion columns that will talk about what did she wear for the occasion. But with God, it's what kind of woman wears the dress, not kind of what kind of dress the woman wears. 1 Peter 3, verse 3, Do not let your adornment be the outward arranging of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on of fine apparel. 
First Timothy says, in like manner, chapter 2, verse 9, that the women, and this is men too, adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with broidered hair or gold or pearl. And you know what modest also means? Men and women should not dress in a way that is specifically designed to be arousing the opposite sex. And I think we all know that that's pretty common today. Point number five, John and Elijah believed in discipling others. 1 Kings 19.21, so Elijah arose and followed Elijah. And what did Elijah do before he went to heaven? He went to visit the schools of the prophets and to prepare all of them uh, for the work they had to do. He trained them. What about John? It says, then the disciples of John reported to him all these things. John had people that he discipled. Something else you find, point number six, they both ministered at the Jordan River. Isn't it interesting that John the Baptist, um, 850 years after Elijah goes to heaven in a fiery chariot, at the same place where Elijah disappears, John the Baptist now appears. And he commences the work. Right in the same area, too, where it happened. It tells us that Elijah was down not far from Jericho when he ascended to heaven. So what does that mean? They ministered at the Jordan. The Bible says that uh, there was a miracle at the Jordan when Elijah crossed over and Elisha crossed over. Naaman was washed in the Jordan from his leprosy. John the Baptist came baptizing in the Jordan, symbolizing a cleansing from sin. And what's the work that we should be doing? Should God's people be discipling people in the last days, teaching them how to follow Jesus, baptizing people in the last days, helping them make that connection, that covenant to follow. Jesus said, Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Certainly is uh, important. You'll also notice that Elijah disciples Elisha. They, he takes him through the Jordan in a miraculous way, a symbol of baptism. Elijah ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit on Elisha. John the Baptist then, he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River and Jesus ascends to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit. Right? The work that we do, the Elijah work that the church needs to do in the last days is preparing the world for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need a revival to show people what it really means to be a Christian. They both manifested great humility. I mentioned this earlier, but if you look in 1 Kings 18.42, Elijah says he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. There was a great humility with Elijah, even though he was bold. We usually think the two don't go together. Jesus was bold, but he was the meekest of men. Moses was bold. He wasn't afraid to confront the Pharaoh, but it says he was the meekest man in all the world. Christians ought to be humble, but at the same time have a boldness. What did John the Baptist do? Matthew 3, verse 11. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And then you read in John 3.30, John the Baptist, John's disciples came and they said, Master, something's wrong. 
Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than you. They're growing. They're getting bigger than us. And, and John said, that's the way it ought to be. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. This is the way it was planned. He is the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I announce the bridegroom, and then there's a wedding for the bridegroom, not for me. <laughs> you ever heard someone say, oh, it's not about you? I remember reading an autobiography, not an autobiography, of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his daughter, who loved him very much, but she did admit, she said, Dad had to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> had to always be about him. But uh, John the Baptist, he said, this is the way it's supposed to be. He must, it would be a great prayer for us to remember. He must increase, I must decrease. All sin comes from selfishness. If we really would pray in our hearts, Lord, you must increase, I must decrease. I think we'd be stronger spiritually. Great humility. There's a statement in Nine Testimonies, page 189. You might be wondering, Pastor Doug, you're quoting several references to the spirit of prophecy. You know, I don't, I don't anticipate I'm going to broadcast this message uh, on national network, and this is sort of in-house. So I want you folks to have that reinforcement. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be a hundred conversions to the truth where now there is only one. What is that, a thousand percent increase in conversions? If we would do what? If we would humble ourselves, there's so much pride. I do marriage counseling 90% of the time. Problem number one, pride, selfishness, and virtually all conflicts. If we would humble ourselves before the Lord, people would be drawn to our faith. Something that you notice also about Elijah and John the Baptist, they ran before the king. The message was to go before the king. When the rain was about to come, you can read in 1 Kings 18, 46, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, which is like a marathon. It was a long run. He ran to prepare the way for the king. What did John the Baptist do? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way before me. And you can read that in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. What about the work of you and I? What did Jesus tell his disciples? Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others. These were not the apostles. 70 others, and he sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was to go. Where did the disciples go? They went before the king, wherever he was going to go. Where's Jesus going to come? To the world. Where should we go? To the world. We need to go before the king and say, prepare to meet your God. Amen. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've got a work to do in preparing people for the king to run before him. Something else interesting about both John the Baptist and Elijah, both were persecuted by vindictive murderous queens. You read in 1 Kings 19, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah say, so let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as a life of one of them. She said, you killed my prophets. I'm going to kill you by tomorrow this time. Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah and Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. During that famine for three and a half years, a number of prophets were hidden in caves. Obadiah helped hide them in caves because Jezebel was killing the prophets during a three and a half year period. 
How long did Jesus minister? Three and a half years. Did John the Baptist die during that time? Why? A murderous, vindictive queen wanted to get rid of him. Not only did Herodias have a daughter, and uh, it's not in the Bible, but Josephus says her name was Salome, but Jezebel had a daughter. You can read about her in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 11. Her name was Athaliah. She tried to kill the prophets of God too. Tried to kill all the descendants of uh, David. So what does that mean? Is there going to be persecution in the last days? Now, I don't know how long the small time of trouble is. It may, might be three and a half years. We don't know. But there's going to be persecution. Where, what does a woman represent? Where there may be a church that professes to be Christian, that just like Jezebel was connected with the king, this woman connected with the state is going to persecute the prophets of God. So we will be reliving Elijah and John the Baptist. Revelation 17, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It's going to happen again, friends. By the way, that was another 1,260 days during the Dark Ages. Both John and Elijah had moments of darkness. They dealt with discouragement. Because you sometimes have doubts and darkness and discouragement doesn't mean you are not God's child. Amen? Did Jonah get discouraged? Jeremiah, Moses. Moses said, Lord, this is your people. I didn't give birth to them. I don't know what to do with them all. How can I feed all these people? I mean, they, they had times. 1 Kings 19.4, And Elijah prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. I quit. <laughs> now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Meaning, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. And, and they tried to kill the other prophets. And John the Baptist in prison got discouraged. And he thought, Lord, why aren't you rescuing me? Why aren't you asserting yourself as the Messiah? Are you the one? He faced it. Will we face a time of Jacob's trouble in the future? Well, God people, God's people have some challenges. You need to brace for impact. We need to have a faith that will stand up during trial and discouragement. Don't get, it's easy to say don't get discouraged. But when it happens, it doesn't mean that God's forsaken you. It happened to John. It happened to Elijah. They both believed in the power of fasting and prayer. Now, one of the longest fasts in the Bible is Jesus and Moses and Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights. We know Elijah prayed. You can read there where it says in James 5:17. I'm going to the New Testament to talk about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I just said that. And he prayed earnestly. How should we be praying? that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed big prayers even though he was just like you and me and he got big answers. And he prayed again and the Lord gave the rain. Now do you know where the prayer of John the Baptist is recorded in the Bible? There is no prayer of John the Baptist recorded in the Bible. So Pastor Doug, how can you say that John the Baptist was a man of prayer? Ah, I've got a way. Luke 11, 1. It came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place, he stopped praying. One of his disciples, they looked at Jesus' face glowing, and they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. How many of you have said the Lord's Prayer before in your life? Let me see your hands. 
How many of you never raise your hand when the pastor asks their question? <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. You don't like being manipulated by a preacher. Do you know where the Lord's Prayer comes from? The Lord's Prayer is triggered because the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer. So did John pray? In Luke 5.33, they come to Jesus, or the disciples say, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? Pray a little or pray often? Do God's people need to pray less in the last days or maybe pray more? You know, if you want to see a revival in the world and in the church, there needs to be a revival of prayer. And you know, the Bible says fasting and prayer. It'd be good for us to fast and pray. Now, some of you have health issues and you should consult your doctor. I always have to put that in there for legal purposes. But Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. I know a lot of people that go to church and they don't ever miss a meal. They don't ever fast. The Bible says that we ought to, you know, it's part of its self-control, part of its seeking after God. I could just branch off and preach a sermon on fasting now. But I know that Elijah and John were people of deep and earnest prayer. And God's people that are involved in the Elijah movement in the last days, we need to be a people of real biblical prayer and even fasting and prayer. Please say amen. amen. And then, you know, most importantly in the last point, is the message of Elijah and John was all calculated to point away from themselves and point to Jesus. When Elijah prayed there on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, 37, he said, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people might know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. It's about you. Elijah was pointing to Jehovah. The whole thing was Turn back to Jehovah. In fact, Elijah's name means my God is Jehovah. It's all about pointing to God. John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb. He doesn't say, Behold me. He says, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. This was the turning point between the sacrificial system where from the time of Adam until John the Baptist, they'd been sacrificing lambs looking forward. Finally, John says, Okay, the whole purpose of that sacrificial system was all a shadow pointing to the substance. Here is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Isaac going up the mountain with his father said, Father, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. John points to Jesus and said, This is the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy. Jesus is the lamb. What is the purpose of the church today? Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not about pointing to our church. It's about pointing to our Savior. And we should be preoccupied with that. How do we lay aside the sin and the weights that beset us? Looking unto Jesus. We need to be pointing people to Christ. That's the key, friends. Turning others to Jesus. You know, I remember doing an amazing fact a few years ago. There's a a town in a valley in uh, Reykjavik, Norway. And six months out of the year, they get no sunshine. There's some sun on the hills up above, but the valley's in darkness. 
And for years, people said, boy, if we could just somehow get the, mount, the light that we see up there on the mountain to shine down in the valley, they finally decided to do it. And they got engineers, and they put together uh, a mechanism where they've got three 550-square-foot mirrors, enormous mirrors, powered by sun, computer-controlled, so as the sun first comes up in the morning, those mirrors are turned to reflect the light of the sun into the middle of the town. And they said it just changed everything. And it brightens people's mood. Folks who had struggled in the winter with depression, everybody gathers now in the middle of the town in this spot of sunlight that's being reflected from the mirrors up on the mountain. Now, the mirrors have no light, but they're reflecting the light of the sun. And you and I are to reflect the light of the Son of Righteousness, which is Jesus. Amen? Families bring their kids out to help prevent jaundice and depression. And they, the whole town gathers in this little spot of sunlight that's coming down from the mountains. That's our work. We are to be reflecting the light of the Son of God in this dark world. Friends, darkness now covers the land and gross darkness the people. But the glory of the Lord will arise upon you. You and I are to show the world who Jesus is. Amen? To reflect that light.